0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, a passage that is memorable to many of us, that we memorized really many of us in the early days of our Christian life, and is so memorable because it's so rich in truth. Its central theme is easy to determine, it is the issue of worship. And worship is so central to our lives, it is in fact the central activity of your life. It is the activity that you participate now in this life and you will participate in in all eternity. It's the reason you exist, it's the purpose for which you were made, it is that for which God redeemed you and brought you back. And when I say worship, I'm not talking about just the activity you do for a few hours here on Sunday. That's not really the totality or the essence of worship. I am talking about your entire life. Your entire life is designed by God to be one continuous act of worship. It's to define you. It is to define your activity. It's unfortunate then that so many of us are hindered in our worship. People struggle so much in this area. If it is the very defining thing, if it's the whole reason why we were made, if it's what we're going to do for eternity, then it's really a sad statement to say that people struggle to worship. They may have a sense of its importance, but they they feel always somewhat inadequate in what they are doing or what they're striving for. They're They might come to a service like this week in and week out and do the same activities that they've always done, but the results are not there. It's not what they desire. There's a sense that something's out of joint, that something's missing. They're dissatisfied with what they believe is their worship, and so a lot of times they'll go out seeking some other experience, uh, maybe just some place with more rock and music, with better lights and sounds, or whatever it might be. For some people, increasingly in today's age, they're turning to rituals, to liturgies, the lighting of candles, the burning of incense, and the trappings that have always gone with Roman Catholicism, being now imported into Protestant churches because people sense that their worship is inadequate. They're trying to find some solution. For others, they just want to go to a place where they feel maybe more comfortable, more wanted. So they just seek out places where everyone's like them, to tailored worship services for older generations or for younger people contemporary worship experiences traditional worship experiences and people are doing this because they're 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 seeking out worship in all of these external ways they're looking Anywhere else, because everything they've tried has really not resulted in what they wanted. They just feel unsettled. They feel superficial. They feel like maybe they're going through the motions. They're, they have nostalgia maybe to some past time in their life where they felt like worship was more genuine. Like it was a better experience. Some church that they attended in previous times. Some Bible study, some, some college group or whatever it was. And they really don't know how to recapture what has been lost. They don't know where to go to find true worship. Well, today, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about true Christian worship. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about where it comes from. We're going to talk about how to maintain it. And we're going to do it by looking at just a couple of verses here in Romans chapter 12. As I said Two of the more memorable verses in all of Scripture, Paul says in verse 1 of this chapter, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, the theme is easy. I mean, we read that, we understand in a cognitive way what Paul's talking about. This is about worship, this is an exhortation to present yourself to God in the right kind of worship. And it's an explanation, really, of how to do that. But more than that it's a response. It isn't just the opening salvo of some treatise that Paul's written. It's a response to everything that we have been looking at for the last 18 months in the book of Romans. It's built and on and it's inseparable from the truths that Paul would have us ponder in Romans 1 through 11. And he presents it here all as a a, a response to all of that truth and basically calling in response to that for worship. He just ended Romans 9 through 11 with one of the richest, most profound doxologies, uh, praise to God at the end of chapter 11. If you see there in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways Who's known the mind of the Lord, who's been His counselor, who's given a gift to Him that He might be repaid, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever. Amen. So here is one of the the most uh, profound doxologies, one of the most profound statements of praise to God that you'll find anywhere, certainly in Scripture, or even in all of your praise songs and hymns and all the things that you lift up to the Lord. Paul has responded to what he himself has written about God and about his work with this bursting forth of praise and worship. And now he's turning to you and I. And now he's telling you and I that we need to respond in the same way. That this kind of thing needs to flow out of, it needs to burst out of, it needs to erupt from us. And so he calls us to this. In fact, he calls us to worship, drawing particular focus to three necessary, you might say, factors in this worship. He he talks about its uh, driving motive, he speaks about its central activity, and he talks about its unmistakable evidence in our life. Its driving motive, its central activity, and its unmistakable evidence. When genuine, true Christian worship is active in your life. The first is really just in the opening words there. The driving motive that is necessary. If you have any hope of maintaining genuine worship in your life. It must come from this. The driving motive of God's mercy. The driving motive of God's mercy. True worship will only arise from a heart and a mind that have this motive. It won't come from anywhere else. The Bible's full of all kinds of attempts, all kinds of acts of false worship. False worship to the false God. Or, or maybe even, we might say, biblically conforming styles of worship, but offered with false motives. All kinds of false worship with false pretenses, warning us that this is a lurking danger in our life, that we would worship God, that we would go through certain motions, that we would offer to Him something that He has absolutely no desire for. If you have your Bibles, you can flip with me over to one of the more memorable passages in Isaiah chapter 1, where in the opening chapter of one of the grandest books of the Bible, much less the grandest book of the Old Testament, this is what he says to Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my court? Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that everything Paul, excuse me, everything Isaiah has mentioned in terms of feast and bulls and lambs and burnt offerings and sacrifices, you know that all of that stuff comes directly out of the scripture. And yet, God is saying, in spite of your external conformity to some biblical mode of of worship, Whatever you're bringing and offering to me, I don't want it. I would rather you not trample my court. I would rather you not show up here. I'd rather you not take a seat in my house and offer to me whatever you're offering because it is despised. He says in verse 13, Bring no more your vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of conventions. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Some of you, if you were honest... You would confess that you've grown weary coming to church, going through the motions, singing the songs, doing all the things that you've done for sometimes decades. And you sort of have these moments when you have these self-pity moments Where you kind of wish you could just leave it all. Well, guess what? You're not the only one who's weary. You weary God with your superficial and false worship. He hates it, he says. Verse 15, you spread out your hands. I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, he says. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will become like wool. God turns His focus there to what He really wants. What He really wants is a deep sense of your sinfulness. What He really wants is a deep sense of how much you need cleansing. What He really wants is for you to see the dark stain, the redness of your sin. And He wants you to cry out to Him for mercy. Genuine worship begins here. It begins with the right motive. Or as Paul says here in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Paul could skip that. I mean, the sentence would have made sense if he had just started halfway through the verse and he just told us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. He could have said that, but Paul would have known it would have run the risk of being uh, empty and futile. And so he wants to draw our attention to this. He, he makes a, a statement, if you will, about his statement. Sometimes the biblical writers do this. They call them meta-comments. They'll make a comment about uh, what they're about to say, like when you sit down or, and your wife tells you, now what I'm about to say to you is important. To let you know that unlike all the other times when you are half listening, this time you better listen, right? They make a statement about what they're about to say. And he's saying, now I appeal to you. I, I, I want you to know that what I'm about to tell you is important. And so therefore, by the mercies of God, it's so important that you understand this. It's so important that you understand this motive. It's so important that you understand what drives it. Paul points to the motive, not only by naming the mercies, but even by using the conjunction, therefore, pointing back to, and sort of uh, summing up the whole previous context. And based on that context, and summarized as the mercies of God, he makes his appeal. He doesn't make his appeal based on your love. He doesn't appeal to us based on our own love. He doesn't say, if you love God, do this. But he's saying it based on God's love, or more particularly on God's mercy. Paul says this because he knows from personal experience that there is no greater incentive to worship than this. He, you see, he had spent much of his own life, from the time he was just a little boy, really, In worship activities. That's all he had known growing up. He was raised. In the strictest tradition of his fathers. In Judaism. And he gave his worship in all sorts of forms. He gave it in the temple. He gave it in the synagogue. He gave it in acts of service. He was zealous. He was devoted. He was sacrificial. But he knew none of it was true worship. Because it was all motivated for himself. It was all focused on his love, his devotion, his faithfulness. What he was offering to God. Paul had been a Pharisee, and like the Pharisee that Jesus describes in Luke 18, when he went into the worship, he stood there and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like the tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. His motive was himself. His worship flowed out of himself, and his personal devotion. His motive wasn't the mercies of God. But Jesus says in his parable, there was another man who stood at the back of the temple, beating his chest and just simply crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the man who offered true worship, Jesus said. You see, worship... Must flow from this. If it's to be true. If it's to be maintained. If it's to be stimulated. It must flow from this. Paul understood this. And he's not appealing to us then. Based on our love for God. Based on our devotion to God. He understands as much as anyone how faulty that can be. He understands that our love is weak. He understands that our love is fickle. He understands that our love wavers. And if you're depending on your love for God to be your motivation for worship, then you're appealing to a defective source and a defective motive. And you will live your life constantly dejected and cast down... Because you won't find within yourself the kind of consistent love and the kind of consistent devotion that you feel like is necessary to offer to God the kind of worship that you think you ought to. You'll be in a constant struggle trying to find the impulse, trying to find the energy to spur you on towards the worship that you think ought to be there. But genuine worship is not based on your love. It doesn't flow from your love. It doesn't come from your devotion. It can't be. Because your love is defective. In fact, it's by recognizing that, the deficiencies of your love, that you are, again, cast on the mercy of God. And those mercies begin to grip you. Paul understood this. He understood that only this kind of a vision for mercy will inspire you to the proper kind of worship. It's like a magnet if you're a believer. The closer you get to it, the stronger the pull, the further away you are, the weaker it is, the more you meditate on the mercies of God, the more you are attracted to and drawn to God, the less time you spend rehearsing your sin, rehearsing your need, rehearsing your cries to God for mercy, the further you drift away from that center and that core, the less compelled you are in worship. So it's incumbent on us, Paul says, for us to ponder, to consider, to study the mercies of God. So that the stronger and stronger will be our desire to worship Him. You do that, there's a mighty welling force that comes within you and it drives you, compels you. There is no need for external compulsion at times when you are... contemplating the mercy of God, the surroundings don't matter. The music, the lights, the people, they don't matter. When you are really taken up with the mercies of God, you understand that you must worship. I've had times in my life where in the middle of a hallway, I was contemplating the mercies of God and felt just compelled to fall to my knees in praise of Him. You're telling yourself that it's all about this stuff. you're telling yourself it's all about the, the 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 seats and the songs and the faces and all this other stuff. You're telling yourself that it's all driven by all these externals when in fact the scriptures telling you no, it's driven by the mercies of God. It just rises within you when you contemplate this, like a I guess a little bit like a nursing mother with her sick child. She becomes sort of like a slave to that child. The, the, the child is never out of her thoughts. She orients her whole day around the child. And none of it out of a, a sense of external duty. There's an internal drive. And we really can't explain it. The child doesn't always you know, pay something back to her or, or whatever. But there's something that wells up within her that compels her. She can't help herself. She has a mother's heart. She has to do this. I guess it's sort of a similar thing whenever you are contemplating the mercies of God and the love of God. When you see with a deep sense your own sin, you're just driven that way. You're just compelled that way. And to the extent that you fill your hearts with God's mercy, to that same extent, your praise will Rise. You will burst forth as Paul did. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge. How inscrutable are his ways. So many people struggle. As I said, they show up on a Sunday in particular and they can't listen to the preaching and they. They go mindlessly through the music and they struggle to sing and they struggle to give and they struggle to pray. And all of it is so mundane and dry. And they assume that it is because of some disappointment in their life. Some person has disappointed them. Some situation has dejected them. Their career has been a disappointment to them. Their health has been a disappointment to them. Their marriage has been a disappointment to them. And they look around and suddenly they struggle to properly worship God. They've lost focus on His mercies. It no longer drives them. What drives them, what churns in them are the disappointments. If you ever see the wheels coming off someone's life spiritually, you can mark it down. It's because they focused on those things. They focused on all the seas, all the seasons. They focused on all the people. All the wrong things. They're no longer driven by the mercies of God. They're just driven by those disappointments. Their spiritual life just dries up. Their worship becomes superficial and stale. They may even begin to seek out some new experience, some new place, some new style. But the problem is not on the outside, it's on the inside. People come up to you and they say, Well, how are things going? And you, know, you might give them the sort of superficial, well, fine. Or if you go beyond that, it's just a list of your woes. Look, if someone comes and asks you how things are going, the only legitimate response really is God has been so very, very kind to me. God has given me innumerable blessings. How could I ever tell you everything he's done? How could I recount to you those things? Oh, but I I heard that you've come down with some bad disease. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm telling you, even through that, I've seen the mercies of God. Oh, but I heard that you, I heard you lost your job. Oh, but let me tell you how good God has been to me through this. Let me tell you what I've learned. Oh, but I heard that you're having this issue with this other person. Oh, yes, but God has used that in my life to refine me, to show me my weakness. Let me tell you how good God has been to me. That's the person who's prepared for worship. Paul wants us to have that. He wants us to understand that. In fact, he's given us 11 chapters to help us understand all of that. So that we understand everything that he has rehearsed for us so far through all of this. It's interesting. And in, in fact, Paul doesn't use the singular word mercy. He doesn't say based on the mercy of God. He uses the plural mercies. And I think that's intentional because he's probably thinking about everything that he said up to this point. Unlike all the other places in Scripture where Paul appeals with the singular here, I think he is thinking of the many gifts and the many graces that he's already discussed in the previous 11 chapters. Those mercies that are reflected throughout all of the great salvation that he has expounded for us, going all the way back to the very beginning when he says that we have been justified by His grace as a gift. That we have, in other words, we have been credited with a righteousness in spite of the fact that we are unrighteous. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we have been given something that we could never deserve, that we could never claim on our own. We've been given a righteousness. And because of this justification... He says in chapter 5, we have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have this peace. Although, he says later in the chapter, we're naturally the enemies of God. Although we were helpless and in a desperate uh, estate, we were born despising God's law, rebelling against Him, stirring up His animosity, and under His wrath, we were spiritually dead, subject to death inwardly and outwardly, as he says... In Romans chapter 5, because we were all born under the curse of Adam. We were all born in Adam. So we were enemies of God, and yet God took mercy on us and reconciled us to Himself by giving us His Son. He says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by His life. You were under the wrath of God. You weren't under some external wrath. You weren't, this wasn't some situation where God was rescuing you from someone else. He was rescuing you from Himself. You were under His wrath. You were His enemy. You were hateful towards Him. You were spurning Him. You were, you were uh, uh, assaulting Him and His law. Disrespectful, deceitful, angry, That's the way you were treating God. And yet He covers it all. Even though you were enemies with God, He says, you were reconciled through the death of His Son. He brought you near Himself. How did He do that? By His mercy. By having mercy on you. You deserve nothing but His wrath, but He saved us from His own wrath. He no longer counts our sins against us. Instead, He counts us as righteous. That was a contrast Paul made in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The Lord blessed us this way. He made us into the blessed man, the blessed woman. So we've received from God. Forgiveness of sins, we receive from God reconciliation brought back into fellowship with Him, justification so that we stand before Him justified with no accusations that can ever be brought against us because the blood of Christ perfectly and completely and forever cleanses us from sin. As Paul says back over in Romans chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. How's someone going to charge you whenever your offense is against God and God is the one who's forgiven you? All of this. God has done, not only removing all of your guilt and your shame, but actually giving you new life. He gives us the Holy Spirit, he tells us in Romans chapter 8, to generate new life within us. So now we walk by the Spirit. And this new Spirit bringing about this new life. He doesn't have to do that. That's a gift. That's an act of grace. He says in Romans eight eleven, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So He gives you this Spirit so that He can give you this life that He gave to His Son. And because of this new life, we're also told in Romans chapter 6 that He has set you free from bondage. You were a slave to sin that was destroying you. Thanks be to God, He says, that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient to the heart, uh, from the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become a slave of righteousness. So God, God has done this. He wasn't obligated to do this, but He did it. He gave you as an act of His mercy. He took pity on you in your slavery, and He set you free so that you are not bo- in bondage to this corrupting and destroying influence. And not only that, He didn't just set you free, He took you as His own Son. Romans 8, 15, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's done all of this for you. He gave you all of these gifts. And sonship means along with that that there's an inheritance, he says, that is destined for you. So not only do you have all this abundance that has been given to you now, but there's something promised to you in the future that is so far beyond what you can even imagine now. It's the inheritance of his own son. It's unspeakable. If you just stop to contemplate it, stop to think it, Instead of thinking all the disappointments that other people have put you through, if you actually stop and think about the disappointments you've put God through, you can't help but be overwhelmed just with the mercy of God. And His mercy doesn't end with the forgiveness of sins and the giving a new life. He promises mercy that would keep us to the end. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if he foreknew you, he has already glorified you in his eternal purposes. So Paul can declare at the end of Romans 8, I am sure then. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor anything the things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's probably the greatest summary of all the ways that God has loved you that are described in the first eight chapters of Romans. This is a love that will forever hold you. So that you can never be separated from the goodness of God. Never. Even if in the midst of a trial for a moment you think that you have. Paul gives you a whole list of things that says they won't separate you. But if mercy underlies a whole book of Romans. It particularly is the theme of Romans 9 through 11. As we've seen. In fact the word mercy does not actually appear in the book of Romans until chapter 9. There's a lot of discussion about grace, a lot of discussion about God's kindness and God's love, but when you, when you want to speak specifically about His mercy, it doesn't come up until Romans nine fifteen, when Paul quotes God saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, you remember we talked about this circular reasoning. The meaning is that God's justification for showing mercy to someone is the fact that He shows mercy to them. That you can't explain it outside of the mind of God. You can't point to anything in any particular person that would be any kind of explanation of why God showed that person mercy. You say, well, God looked ahead and God saw them and God knew that they were going to respond to Him. No, not according to Scripture. That's not why God has mercy. You know why God has mercy? Because He has mercy. Sort of like when God says, I am that I am He's saying, I I don't have any reason outside of myself that caused me to exist. There was no uh, God prior to me that created me and successively came down. I am the reason I exist. I am that I am, he told Moses. And in the same sort of of independent sovereignty of God, the aseity of God there, the, the same sort of self-contained reason. He says, I have mercy because I have mercy. And I have compassion because I have compassion. That's all you know. You may sit back and imagine that God has some reasons to be merciful to you that He doesn't have with other people. You may sit back and imagine that that, uh, you know, some others are not as deserving of mercy as you are, but if you think that, you're thinking wrong. The only reason to explain why He had mercy on you is that He had mercy on you. As Paul says in the next verse, Romans nine sixteen. So then, it depends, that is, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. These are the mercies to which Paul is appealing. This is the mercy that so overwhelmed him. As he goes all the way through chapters 9, 10, and 11 and unfolds for us the mercy of God on on Jews and on Gentiles. In his election of them according to his plan. And he wraps it all up in chapter 11 verse 30 with this most concentrated discussion of God's mercy. For just as you at one time were disobedient to God. But now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. Because of the Jews disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient. In order that by mercy shown to you they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. God did all this because God wants to put on display His mercy. And Paul says all that and then he breaks out into doxology. Oh my word! At the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God. How can anyone search out this magnificent plan? These electing graces, these electing mercies, causes them to erupt. And he understands, as he transitions to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that you and I need that same perspective. If we're going to offer to God... The kind of worship we're supposed to offer to God. If we're going to sustain ourselves through decades of Christian life and Christian service, if we're going to continue to offer to God worship that is not repugnant to Him, doesn't make Him obnoxious, uh, excuse me, God's not, uh, God's not uh, turned off by it, whatever you say. If, if we're going to offer to God something that He Doesn't react to like he did in Isaiah chapter 1. Where he says, my soul abhors that. We're going to offer to God worship. That is true and genuine and pleasing. It will only be as you are constantly consumed with the mercies of God. It's like a vice that you put yourself in. And you turn the cranks and you squeeze yourself with the mercy of God. Because God's mercy is squeezing you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, The love of Christ constrains us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And that He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. He, we conclude this, that it's not about us. It's not about me. That my Christian life is, is no longer me living for myself, existing for myself, constantly contemplating how people are treating me, or the situation suits me, or the circumstances affect me. It's not about me. Because he died, I died. And when I died, the love of Christ now constrains me. Compels me. Not, Christ, not his love for Christ, but his love from Christ. Paul understood it. He understood from personal experience that his love would never be enough. You might have told yourself, you know, I just I just don't have the love for Christ I used to. Well, he still has the same love for you. It hasn't changed. You might have forgotten it. You may not have pondered it. But it hasn't changed. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was pastor's 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many years. He told the story of going to Tokyo and telling... Uh, talking to a, uh, an attendant there, someone who worked in the uh, concierge desk. Uh, uh, an educated uh, lady spoke uh, several languages. Her English was quite good. And after several days of going back and forth past the desk, he stopped to ask her one day, are you a Christian? She said, no, I'm a Buddhist. And she explained how her family were Buddhist. They all worshipped Buddha and gave him a few uh, answers, maybe trying to turn him off. After talking to her for a few moments about the gospel, he asked her a simple question. He says, do you, do you love Buddha? Or more importantly, does Buddha love you? She was startled. Love? She said, I never thought about love in the context of religion. Dr. Barnhouse began to explain to her the beautiful reality of God's love. She saw the differences. She knew that her people burned their incense and offered their sacrifices in an effort to appease a cruel or impulsive whim from a deity or best as an attempt to manipulate and exploit some god for some personal goals. But she knew that what Barnhouse was describing was very different. Buddhists don't love Buddha and Buddha doesn't love them. Taoists have no deity that they have some affection for, and they have no deity that they hope for affection from. Hindus do not love their many gods, and their many gods don't love them. The Quran isn't based on a religion of Allah's love for the Muslim. It's based on a religion of fear. The sad reality is once you lose sight of the mercy and inexplicable love that God has shown for you you're left offering to God nothing but pagan worship. Just outward rituals trying to appease or trying to manipulate a God for personal reasons. So where's your motivation coming from? Where is your worship? How have you been doing? Did you answer, well, God has been so merciful to me. Can't believe He's been so merciful to me. Paul's appeal to you then is, worship God. Of course, some of you have tried to worship. You have come here from time to time you hear all the songs. You see all these Christians doing all these things. But you, you really don't understand it all because you've never experienced the mercy of God. You don't know anything about God's mercy. Religion has always been about your efforts to please other people, to maybe offer something that you think would be pleasing to God, to do something before God that He would respond to. You've never realized that this is really all about you being under the wrath of God and God's mercy being your only hope. If you're here this morning and you're that way, that's, your, that's the message for you. The message for you, the one that God is seeking to worship Him is the one not who stands at the front and says, God, this is what I have to offer. This is me. This is all the things that I do. It's the one who stands at the back Beating his chest, beating her chest. And just crying out, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. You do that, Paul says you're prepared to offer what is acceptable, pleasing, and holy to the Lord. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we do pray that You would be merciful to us as a congregation and as a people who have sometimes lost our way in worship, who have sometimes fallen into nothing but pagan rituals. Lord, forgive us today. Have mercy on us today. We sit and we hear... The word taught each week, and we sing the songs recounting Your goodness, and they just—they just never register with the depth that they should. And we've lost our way in worship. But Lord, would You deal with us again in Your kindness? Would You grant us repentance? Would You fill our hearts again with the kind of humility? that we've known in days gone by, would You flood us with a deep sense of our own unworthiness, with a brokenness over our sin, with a cry to You. I love the Lord because He heard my pleas for mercy. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.